Hi y'all, it's Tuesday. We're in the control room because we're in charge now. We are taking over, but we're still hosting the show. And today we have a great <laughs> one for you. We are talking Acosta and the Epstein trial. And then Howie D and Robin Givens are stopping by and we're having a little kiki. Yeah, well, I don't know how anything works in here, but I'm still gonna push all the buttons. Mm. We'll see you on the timeline. Alex's gonna break something. Ready? Go. Yep. It's over, see? It's over. <laughs> Show's not more. Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Uh, and we tried to break the show, but it didn't. I break. really wanted another day off. I want to go back to the <laughs> island. I did for two seconds. Think, oh shit, did we actually break? I know, I know that uh, that little visual effect in there it really fooled bra us. Bravo, bravo, y'all yeah. back there. Way to freak us out. Like, I know it was really fun we, to just go because Buzzfeed has a policy called "You break it, you buy it," <laughs> and I can't afford a studio. Just like in invoice, Zach. For Please it. don't. No. <laughs> Moving on. How? How are you doing today? Let's not talk about my bills. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I won't give you my diatribe about this particular day oh, of the do. week. So, because I've grown, I was thinking about you this morning um, as I was leaving Soul Cycle, and I thought to myself, I love Tuesdays. It's the first day where I don't feel hungover anymore. It's a really fresh day for me. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like feeling good and ready to go. But you know how I feel about like the yes. days early in the week, feeling far from, yeah. I will spare everybody from my little TED yes. talk about Alex thinks Tuesday's the longest day from the weekend. Blah, yeah, exactly, blah, 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 blah. blah. Yes, feelings. take me back on vacation. Yes, well we have more feelings <laughs> for you that Alex and I will debate that are not about Tuesday, Indeed. but come from a tweet. Here's a tweet from Roxanne Gay about traveling. I really might write an essay about checking versus carrying on. I'm quite passionate about this topic. Jill Filipovic's tweet responded, I so want to do a point-counterpoint on this. I am a longtime bag checker who has recently switched to being a nearly always carry-oner. Why? Terrible slow airports that add an hour for a check bag. I now carry on if the trip is three weeks or less and I am a packing machine. Well, Jill, I may need your skills because I'm an overpacking machine, which means I do what? <laughs> uh, you check. I check my bag. I'm team check-in. I'm team check-in. What about you? Team carry-on <gasps> all the way. Wow, you know? we are two different people. It's well, like our names are different, A to Z. <laughs> it, it is true. Tell me why you are about checking your luggage. Okay, so here we go, America. <laughs> I have a lot of baggage, both physical and emotional. And you know, when I get to that airport, I like to arrive early. I don't like being there right when the, you know, the plane's taking off. I get very stressed out. What doesn't stress me out is going to a little cocktail lounge and having me a martini. So I like to arrive. I like my bags to be on the plane before me so I know where I'm going, all of that. And I'm not carrying them because a bar is tiny and I only need room for my martini glass and my phone. That's it. And then also, when you get off the plane, you have time to kill because, you know, these rideshare apps take forever now to get into an airport because of construction or whatever. So, you know, I like to have me a little sit down by the, the conveyor belt, let my bags come, and I grab them, and I stroll on out. And that's well, fine. all of this is predicated on uh, the notion that your bags have made it on the plane, something mm -hmm. that I feel uh, doubtful of from time to time because <laughs> I'm a person who lives between anxiety and paranoia at all times, and therefore I carry my bag on because there are things in it, such as my makeup and my hair straightener, that I simply cannot live without. And I'm not gonna get scammed into spending $40 when I already paid for a plane right. ticket. Well, we're not so. settling this today, obviously. We're just not traveling together. <laughs> so there we go. Alas, we are not. Mm. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Do you carry or check your bag? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2. It depends. Actually, at the end of the day, like sometimes I carry on, sometimes I check it. 
Also, me too. Wow. We met in the middle of America. (laughs) You two can be bipartisan. But anyway, moving on, here's a tweet from investigative journalist Vicki Ward. In 2002, I was assigned to write a profile of Jeffrey Epstein for Vanity Fair. This was that piece. But what was published was far from the whole story. And she continued with this tweet, I tried to expose Jeffrey Epstein for what he is, and I was silenced. Everyone who knew about Epstein was silenced by people with more money and power and influence. Now that silence is over, it's time for the truth to see the light. Mm. Vicki Ward joins us now to discuss her original story and the latest developments in the Epstein case. Good morning, Vicki. Good morning. So let's dive right on in. Why were you assigned to profile Jeffrey Epstein in 2002? So back then, um, people had heard of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and he was, but, but they didn't know very much about him. He was a figure of mystery. He was kind of like a, a, a real life Jay Gatsby. He lived in uh, New York's largest private residence, um, and yet no one knew the source of his wealth. Um, he claimed to be the money manager for billionaires, but he never uh, said which billionaires. And there was no trace of him, no footprint in the trading markets. Um, He was known for uh, a circle of extremely influential friends, ranging from politicians um, to academics, to lawyers, to financiers. And he was unusual, you know, he never, he never really was seen out at restaurants, but he was famous for these parties that he would have where all the, the, the New York's rich and famous gathered, along with very young, often foreign women. And what happened back in 2002 was that most unusually, he was mentioned in uh, the New York Post, in the gossip column. He was, he was typically very press shy. And uh, page six wrote that he had flown former President Bill Clinton to Africa on his private plane. So that was the kind of hook that had the magazine's editor say to me, well, Vicky, I've been hearing about this strange guy for years. Go investigate him. And um, so really, my, my investigation was two pronged. I wanted to find out What was the real source of this man's wealth? And what was the deal with these very young girls? Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, yesterday, your editor, Graydon Carter, responded to you saying he cut some reporting and he stated that, quote, we were not in the habit of running away from a fight, but she simply didn't have the goods. What's your response to that? Well, it's just not true. Um, The women were very, you know, they were on the record, as was their mother, and they had character witnesses, um, including the artist Eric Eric Fischel, uh, who vouchsafed not only for them, but for the fact that they had talked about what had happened to them um, with Jeffrey Epstein at the time it had happened. Um, I think that what's, what's important to remember here is that Graydon Carter cut the women from the story after Jeffrey Epstein met with him, which in itself is extraordinarily inappropriate. You know, when you're the subject of a piece, you you, you don't go and then negotiate with the editor of a magazine. Um, And Jeffrey Epstein met with him in his office. And it was after that meeting 
that and and long after the the article had been fact-checked and gone through a legal vet that the women were taken out of the story. What Graydon Carter got out of that meeting was he got photographs from Jeffrey Epstein that he could then use to uh, illustrate the article. Mm. And Vicky, what were the details that these women shared that Graydon needed out for Epstein to give him these photos? Well, <laughs> the biggest problem was that one was underage uh, when she claimed that, you know, Jeffrey Epstein fondled her, assaulted her. Um, and, uh, you know, their story really fits a pattern that now is very familiar uh, to people. Um, they were not from a wealthy family. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein promised the older sister uh, the opportunity to sell her artwork. He promised the younger sister, who was underage uh, when the encounter took place, um, that he would pay for her to go on a trip, uh, a, a summer abroad, which was something she needed for her resume in order to go uh to an Ivy League school. And very cleverly, he used his then girlfriend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was a very prominent uh, British-born socialite in New York. She came from a very famous, well-heeled British family. Um, And it was Ghislaine who phoned these two sisters' mother and assured, um, assured the mother that she would be around at all times when when her youngest daughter came to stay that she would be supervising, which is the only reason that the mother then let this young woman go stay with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this fits a pattern. You know, Jeffrey Epstein didn't prey on rich women who had the means to stand up to him. He preyed on women who were poor, who needed the money, and whose credibility he could easily, with his ace team of lawyers, override. Mm-hmm. Had these stories, had your story remained fully intact in 2002, how do you think that would have impacted the Epstein case? I think the FBI would have investigated immediately uh, instead of waiting three years. Mm. And, uh, you know, as you saw with the latest investigation that came right on the heels of the excellent reporting in the Miami, in the Miami Herald by Julie Brown. So I think that what would have happened is that, that if they'd been, if they'd been more prominent in my story, um, the FBI would, wouldn't, would not have uh, waited three years. Mm. And why do you think now, you know, this case has been called an open secret by so many people and many people in New York have heard of these rumors. Well, why do you think he's now being held accountable, not only with this indictment, but with public opinion? Well, I think partly the culture has changed, right? The whole Me Too movement. Um, But I really do think that, you know, the Miami Herald has to take a lot of the credit because the stories that they told were old. They just hadn't been told. I mean, Julie Brown went and interviewed victims who expressed very poignantly the trauma that they felt from what had happened from years ago. And I think that um, that clearly lit a fuse under Congress 
And, um, you know, credit has to go to Ben Sass, the Republican senator from Nebraska, who teamed up with 15 Democrats and said, you know, how on earth could this have happened? And this man have just got away with this cushy 13-month time in county jail from where he was allowed to go for walks, go work. How on earth did basically the law get broken? Because when that plea deal was struck, the victims were not notified, which turns out to be against the law. So I think it's the change in the political climate, the change in the cultural climate, where people have just said, enough, Mm. Well, Vicky, thank you so much for your reporting for so many years and also for joining us today to give us even greater insight into this case that continues to grow. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, I was so struck hearing about uh, the transactional nature of cutting these women's mm. stories in exchange for the photos. I mean, it really just makes you think about how we treat yeah. women and girls yes. and, and just how valuable these stories are. Exactly. You know, I, I also serve as an editor-in-chief of a magazine that does investigative work. And one of the biggest rules in journalism is not to do harm onto others through your reporting, and especially these backhanded deals. And it's hard to imagine what would be so important in these photos to silence so many young girls. Yeah. So we will look out to see what Graydon Carter says to that too. Yeah, well, we have more on this story, of course. Here's a tweet uh, from NPR. Jeffrey Epstein served just 13 months in county jail and was granted work release under a previous plea deal. That deal was brokered by then U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta, who now serves as President Trump's labor secretary. Mm. And here's a tweet from Kyle Griffin. Officials at the White House are nervous that Democrats will encourage women allegedly abused by Jeffrey Epstein to testify publicly before Congress drawing attention to now Labor Secretary Alex Acosta's work on the plea deal, Washington, Report, Washington Post reports. Joining us today to discuss the fate of Acosta is senior labor and employment reporter for Bloomberg Law, Ben Penn. Good morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, Jeffrey Epstein's indictment has uh, brought renewed interest to the secretary. Why is that? Right, well, We've known about, the public has known about the secretary's role in, in handling the uh, plea deal for Epstein in, back in 2008 when he was a uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida. But, uh, I mean, really, as you were just mentioning, the, uh, the incredible investigative work of Julie Brown of the Miami Herald brought renewed public outrage outrage over um, the fact that Epstein has been allowed to uh, remain free and uh, received uh, such a uh, minimal sentence uh, relative to uh, the, that uh, wasn't proportional at all to uh, the uh, crimes he was being accused of. And now uh, that we have uh, new charges today spanning a time frame in, that could have been uh, uncovered had a more thorough investigation and prosecution taken place under Acosta's watch in 2008, I think that uh, even though uh, even though this a lot of this information has been known about Acosta for years now, um, there, there are renewed calls for his job and, and just creating really poor optics for a White House uh, that is, uh, you know, facing a, uh, a re-election campaign in which they're going to have to be appealing to, uh, to women voters. Mm. And last night, Speaker Nancy Pelosi put out a call for Acosta's res resignation. She says that Trump entered into an unconscionable agreement with Epstein and thus he should leave his job, uh, Acosta should leave his job. What does she mean by this? Well, what she means is that, uh, you know, we, we have new evidence of, uh, of dozens of, uh, of victims as young as 14 years old whose voices were, were never 
had a chance to see their their day in court and uh, that uh, that this is all stemming back to Acosta's role in um, in, in giving this sweetheart uh, plea deal to Epstein and uh, you know I, I think right now it doesn't matter that uh, that Acosta's in a new job I, I think what she's referring to is any association to um, this administration has to somebody who allowed um, a man like Epstein to uh, to remain free today is uh, something this administration should be ashamed of. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the uh, dynamic there with the administration, and you reported yesterday that Acosta was already on thin ice uh, with the White House and other officials. What can you tell us about that situation? Sure. So that's actually uh, dating back to uh, really the, the tension was mounting earlier this year as soon as Mick Mulvaney became acting chief of staff. And uh, he really uh, began pushing the interests of uh, some powerful uh, business groups who uh, were uh, growing increasingly dissatisfied with the uh, pace of uh, policy reversals at the Department of Labor. They want they, they wanted a uh, faster pace of uh, deregulation, um, some of the worker-friendly policies from the Obama administration, worker-friendly regulations um, that unions favored, they felt were uh, still in place. And, uh, you know, there, whether there's merit to that is another uh, story, but... Uh, the, so what began happening is there were just uh, the, the voices in the business community began to uh, bleed into the White House and there were forces in the White House, and especially in the Domestic Policy Council, that uh, grew empowered under Mulvaney's watch and began uh, um, really uh, tightening uh, the screws on uh, on Acosta and uh, overruling him in some of his uh, more cautious, uh, deliberate, legally minded um, um, decision making at the Department of Labor. Acosta is known as somewhat of a, of a micromanager who likes to uh, roll up his sleeves and uh, and uh, get get into the weeds of uh, rule drafting. And uh, when it comes to uh, um, you know Republicans and business community that uh, that wants uh, uh, that, that's feeling pressure to uh, you know, they know time is running out in this administration before perhaps there's a, uh, a Democratic White House in 2021. Uh, Acosta's style just wasn't really uh, fitting in with, with their uh, priorities. Now, um, now that Epstein is uh, back in the news, that seems to be uh, providing new ammunition to some of the forces in the White House that were anti-Acosta to um, encourage the president to remove him. Mm, new ammunition. Well, Ben, thank you so much for walking us through that situation, and we will be following your reporting more as it continues. Thank you very much. Well, we have a great show for you today. I'm sitting down with Robin Givens and Howie D, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. But up next is Fire Tweets, so stay tuned. Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets, and I'm still team carry-on. <laughs> You're not letting that go. <laughs> Never! I'm not losing this battle, so we're moving on. <laughs> we have a first tweet for you. Pun Monday, pun day, you tweet it. <laughs> Every guy I know named Hunter looks more like a gatherer. <laughs> <laughs> this made me think about my childhood best friend, Forrest, because he looked like a gatherer. Forrest, but oh, hunters okay. do, you know, tote the line. Interesting. Uh, but I did know a hunter in high school that could, you know, hunt me. <laughs> Let's just leave that one right there. Moving that was on. too good. Let's move on. <laughs> Anna, you tweeted. Four weeks into a job, you've seen everybody's shirts. 
God. Which is totally true. You've seen all my shirts. These are all the shirts that I have. So this is a new shirt today, <laughs> and I realize it because I have a daily stress that you all will clock me for wearing the same clothes. Mm. But I move past it. You know what? We need a big wardrobe department. Thank you. You know, Note. just uh, putting mm. that out there mm. in the world. Money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Toya, you treat it. Y'all wanna know a weird pet peeve of mine? This makes me really mad, actually. You know when you're out to eat and the waitress comes and says, I have a chicken parmesan, and then everyone is quiet and looking lost, including the person who ordered the damn chicken parmesan. <laughs> so I have sympathy for this person because I do this, because I'm hoping you girls thought I ordered the kale, but really I got the chicken. Okay. That's not cool because then we're all sitting there waiting to eat and you're like, I don't know, did I order the chicken? It's like, just get your food, put your plate down, eat your dinner, let us all move on with ourselves. Sounds like a person problem. Ava, <laughs> you treated. Kids be like, watch this and do the lamest shit ever. They really do. <laughs> they be like, watch me spin. And you're like, you're, I spin all the time. Like, oh. <laughs> I just go with the Kris Jenner line, you know, you're doing great, sweetie. You're doing great. Like, you're doing we, great, sweetie. I'm not we, even watching, I don't even care. Because we don't need you to develop a complex. Also, we'll leave the bullying for <laughs> other people. <laughs> all right, all right. of the day. Yeah. Boom. It comes from Alyssa Limperis. Me and my gals in college, Yes, let's drink this bag of wine and go dancing. <laughs> me and my gals, me and my gals now. Okay, so what are what you are experiencing is repressed trauma, and what I'm about to guide you through is called a dialectical behavioral therapy. Wow, <laughs> I really there's a lot there to unpack. But also, we can do therapy and drink at the same time. You know, I long for the days when a bag of Franzia could wait, solve all my problems. Wait, wait, wait! You actually drank. A bag I, of I, that is all I have to say on this I, matter. I got drunk with Alex and Shangela with wine, so I know that she can down a bag of Franzia. And we're moving <laughs> along. Coming up, Zach will be sitting down with Backstreet Boy Howie D. No more Franzia. More Franzia. No more. <laughs> Done. Welcome back. The Root tweeted, police charged an Arizona man with first degree murder after he allegedly killed a black teenager because the teen's music was a threat to his community and made him feel, quote, unsafe. Davey tweeted, young black teens are being murdered in the US for wearing hoodies, playing with toys, listening to rap music, standing outside a store. This is a racial issue, not a mental health issue. These people are white supremacists and terrorists tired of this shit. Michael Harriet, a senior reporter at The Root, joins us now to discuss all of this. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And so to begin, who is Elijah Al-Amin and what happened to him? Elijah Al-Amin was a 17-year-old uh, kid in Tempe, in, yes, in Tempe, Arizona, who, um, who was working at a subway. And he got off um, from the subway, and I'm sorry, he um, not, and he was shot. He a man came, entered into a convenience store that uh, Alamine was in, and he was shot. I mean, he was he was stabbed. His throat was slit, and uh, the guy said that he killed him because uh, he was playing. The guy uh, Alamine was playing rap music, and he felt that rap music was a threat to his community. He had been previously attacked by someone who played rap music and that uh, he was trying to be proactive instead of reactive. The killer's name was uh, Michael Paul Adams. He had just gotten out of jail less than 72 hours before the incident. And uh, 
a 17-year-old black kid is dead because apparently someone didn't like him playing rap music. Mm. And what can we know about Michael, uh, Michael Paul Adams' motives? What did he tell the investigators? And where is this man now today? Uh, so he's uh, still in jail on a $1 million bond. Uh, he said, as I said previously, that he had been previously attacked by, uh, by someone playing rap music, that he thought it was a threat to him. He felt unsafe around rap music. And so he followed this kid in the store and killed him. Mm. Just so so horrifying. And I mean, there's uh, so much to unpack with uh, what he is claiming. Um, and on that note, Adam's lawyer said that he had mental health issues, but there's been a lot of pushback to that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I don't think anyone has said that uh, Adams doesn't have mental health issues, but it's always interesting to a lot of people who witness these kinds of events that whenever it is a white male who commits a heinous crime, it's talked up to mental health or to, you know, a troubled kid. We've seen, you know, the bomber in Austin called a troubled kid. We've seen um, school shooters who are called um, troubled and all American. But um, when those kinds of incidents happen with black uh, criminals or black suspects, they're never given that same benefit of the doubt. And it seems like to many people, including myself, that when these kinds of things happen, the public, the media reporters look for a reason to explain why a white person could have done this when black people don't get the same kind of benefit of the doubt. Mm, same type of benefit of the doubt. So the hashtag Justice for Elijah has been trending since the death. What are people looking for to happen next with his death in this tragic case? I think, um, you know, uh, one of the things, justice would mean that this person, you know, won't be able to get out of this crime because because of mental health issues, um, you know, it needs to be treated as a as a crime and uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And I think, you know, the other thing is there are people, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations and other activists are looking for it to be prosecuted under hate crime statutes. Looks like uh, we just lost our guest, but we're so glad that Michael could join us this morning. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'm really glad that we got to cover this on the show. Yeah, you know, it seems like this happens so much. The young person, especially a young black child, is killed for no reason, or someone thinks they have a reason, and then they end up dead, and we find out they were just listening to music, they were just playing in a gazebo like Timmy Rice, and it just seems to never stop. So I'm looking forward to see how activists coalesce and kind of bring change to this moment, because it continues to happen. Indeed it does. And we, of course, will keep covering it on the show. Yes, of course. Well, we have more AIM to Deem up next, so stay tuned. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Grammy Award-winning singer Howie D, one-fifth of everyone's favorite boy band, including mine growing up, the Backstreet Boys. How are you? Good, how are you doing, buddy? Good to see you. Nice to see you. You know, childhood me would freak out right now, but today I'm a <laughs> professional and I'm keeping it together. Uh, so it's great to honored. have you here. Thank though. you very much. It's really, really good to have you. So you have a new album coming out, which and it's called Which One Am I? Yep. You have described this as a family album. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. If you would have asked me probably... You know, 11 years ago, if I would ever be thinking of doing a family album, a kid's album, I would have probably thought you were off your rockers. But you know what? <laughs> Life has changed. Uh, we've, you know, all the Backstreet Boys, we've grown up now. Um, pretty much all of us now are married with kids. Mm. 
And about five years ago, um, I was sitting with my son, James, the oldest one, um, who's 10 now, he was at five at the time. And I just was having a hard time connecting with the music that was out there, bonding with him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand it because I felt like, you know, there's so many great movies that are out there that, are, you know, parents and kids can enjoy, like Wreck-It Ralph, Toy Stories, all these great ones. And I, I didn't understand why there wasn't any music on that same kind of level. And then one day it really dawned on me when I was looking at the audience of, of one of our concerts and I started seeing all these mothers who have grown up with us mm -hmm. that are now bringing their kids out to our shows. And I'm like, absolutely, I need to do yeah. something that besides Backstreet Boys, the parents and kids can enjoy as well. Yeah, for sure. And the lead single off your album is called No Apolo Espanol. It's about growing up mixed race. So tell exactly. me about that experience as a fellow mixed race person. Did, did you have to feel like you had to choose a side growing up? Well, you know, the, when I decided to make the album, I was working with two great writers, Tor uh, Haim and Lisa St. Lou out of here, out of New York. And when we were discussing what to, to write about for the record, they said, actually, they said, your life as a, as a child is really interesting. I went through a lot of same situations that kids are now, you know, many years later going through the same things as being shy, um, feeling, you know, vertically height challenged, <laughs> um, definitely uh, being my older sister's shadow. And, and one of the songs uh, we wrote, like I say, was No Habla Español, which was dealt with as a little kid. My mother uh, was Spanish. My dad's Irish, Scottish, American. But back in that time when I was growing up, I think a lot of parents and you know coming from other countries were just trying to make sure the kids were like Americanized, mm -hmm. and I growing up with the accent. So mm -hmm. in my family household, unfortunately, I didn't learn Spanish, mm. and it wasn't until many years later that I did learn Spanish. But as a little kid, people just automatically assumed with my nice olive tan here yeah. that uh, I was Spanish yeah. and would just start speaking to me Spanish automatically. Mm. And so really quickly, I learned to say no hablo español, which means I don't speak Spanish. Wow! But I've always felt a very close connection with my Latin roots, mm -hmm. um, especially as I got older. I mean, I love the food, I love the rhythms, I love the people, and um, I'm still trying to influence my kids to mm -hmm. make sure that they still have a part of that generation still Yeah, there. that's so important. And you mentioned your mother is Puerto Rican. <clears throat> yes. Um, have you had a chance to visit uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria? I have. Actually, I'm blessed to have a place in Puerto Rico that I got from okay. my mom uh, several years back, and I recently visited it about six months ago um, just to make sure after it was fixed up and everything, mm -hmm. and. I uh, went back to see the island, and because uh, I have really, I feel like, deep roots there. Um, even though, um, I, like I say, now that I've learned a bit more Spanish, I don't speak as fluently, but I can get enough by to survive, my, you know, make my family survive and eat mm -hmm. and be okay. Yeah. Um, but like I say, it's, it's such a beautiful island, and I, and I felt so compassionate to, you know, to want to do what I could, yeah. especially when, you know, when the, the hurricane hit, and, and um, at the time with Backstreet Boys to, to get out and encourage people to yeah. help donate and really support it. Um, but the island has it's come back strong. You know, Puerto mm -hmm. Rico is strong, and and the people there are strong, and the island is going to be bigger and better. Mm. And you know, you mentioned that you stepped in and helped out on the island right after the devastation. What was it like watching the U.S. government do barely anything? You know, it was, it was it's definitely tough. Um, I'm definitely not a a politician or try to uh, interject too much. I'm a, I'm a singer, and um, so but I definitely I, I can feel the compassion for the island. Um, you know, and, and uh, so that's why I try to do as much as I could on, on my part to support it as much as I could by, you know, letting the fans know and, mm -hmm. and uh, really, you know, using, I guess, my quote-unquote celebrity status mm -hmm. to bring awareness to the island. Mm, well, speaking of fans, you're currently on tour, on the DNA tour, which yes, is named sir. after your latest album, which went to number one immediately. Um, is it surprising that your fans have remained so faithful over the years? I mean, we have some of the best fans around the world. They truly are the heart and soul of Backstreet, Pri of Backstreet Boys, and I have a saying, keep the Backstreet Pride alive, and they do that. After now 26 years, they have supported us in the highs and the lows. 
Um, and they're coming out strong now to the, on the tour. Uh, we just finished uh, a two-month uh, run over in Europe wow. where it was amazing to have sold-out arenas. And to be back here in the States and doing arenas again, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those kind of things that every artist, you know, when you have such, such an amazing career the first round to have lightning strike in a bottle twice mm-hmm. is an amazing feeling. And I think we owe that to all of our fans. Mm. And how have you as a group managed to stay so strong over those years? Because your fans have stayed true, you know, mm-hmm. the music is good, it's gonna stay good, but you guys have really kept close for this entire time. You know, we truly have a bond that's like on any other. I mean, we say we're like brothers, it's almost like a second marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of us have almost kind of been married to each other longer than our own marriages. <laughs> um, but you know, we have our moments, good and bad, even mm-hmm. with each other. Um, we're not perfect. But we really try to communicate, and, uh, and I feel like that's the, the key to any, anything in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the guys, you know, we, we, we talk about things. We, I know, you know, what's the enough factor for each of the guys. Mm-hmm. And we all say, okay, let's, let's discuss our, our careers. It's, it's now about having a balance, especially mm-hmm. now that we have families. For sure. And so we're able to talk about it and say, hey, you know, I really need this time off, or I really want to work on possibly even a, a solo project, mm-hmm. like what I'm working on. And, and the guys, we all are open to each other to, you know, spread our wings, you know, and because being in a group, you know, sometimes you do lose a little bit of your individuality. Sure. So these individual projects that we allow each other to do just allow us to be stronger as individuals and come back even stronger for the group. Mm, and I'm sure the fans love a strong group to remain strong. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but before Backstreet Boys, you auditioned for Menundo. So on a scale of one to 10, how excited <laughs> are you that you did not get that gig? <laughs> well, you know, what? it's quite interesting. Um, and that was one of the biggest uh, hurdles that I went through that really made me realize I need to learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that time, especially as a kid growing up in Orlando, you trying to do the acting, the singing, the dancing just to get a break. A lot of times I was always sent out for like the Spanish roles and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I would hinder myself by unfortunately not speaking Spanish. And so when I had the odd chance to audition for Menudo back when I was 14 years old, I had a couple of callbacks when they had a house in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's quite funny, actually, Ricky Martin sat in on my audition. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he was in the group at the time. And I sang the song Endless Love, the girl and the guy part, because my voice hadn't really properly changed oh, wow. yet. And, uh, but the, uh, the talent coordinator was like, hey, Ricky, come down here. Because <laughs> that was, I guess, like I said, his favorite song. But it was, it, was, it was a great experience. It was a learning lesson in life. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a catalyst that really made me realize that I need to take a stronger interest in learning the language. Yeah. I took uh, courses in high school and college, Berlitz courses. Um, even by the time I got into the group, I encouraged the guys to sing some songs of ours, translate them mm-hmm. in Spanish. Uh, we did uh, Nunca Te Haré Llorar and uh, Donde Quieres Llorire. Um, and so it's one of those kind of things that I, you know, besides Menudo and seeing other great groups that we admired, like Boys to Men translating some of their songs, I realized there was a big, huge Latin fan base out there for us. And yes. I think the guys appreciate that I'm a little Latin because I bring that yes. fan base to the group. You bring, you bring it there. Bring, and yeah. you expand the audience for them so that Absolutely. everyone can love you globally. Absolutely. Well, Thank speaking you, of loving everything, uh-huh. your album is called Which One Am I? Which everyone's going to love. So we thought it would be a fun. It would be fun to ask you which member you would be if you were in these groups, which you'll see right here. All right. Are you ready to play a little game? Sure. <laughs> All right. So the Spice Girls, would you want to be Baby Spice, Ginger Spice, Sporty Spice, Posh Spice, or Scary Spice? Well, the funny thing about this question is that uh, we do an annual Backstreet Cruise. And uh, this past one here, um, it wasn't my idea. Uh-huh. I definitely won't take claim for it. But the, we always try to do like fun uh, nights at uh, like deck, big deck parties okay. out for all. And we'll have like 2,000 fans that'll be on this boat. And every night we're doing something, you know, a fun party for them after like around from like 12 to like 4 o'clock in the morning. And um, 
I don't know who it was, but one of some of the guys said we we should go as dressed up as the Spice Girls, <laughs> and I don't know. Okay, who are you? So it was a process of elimination because uh-huh. uh, uh, I think our wardrobe stylist automatically thought I should be Scary Spice, naturally. But, but AJ said no way in in the world would he allow that because he feels like he's Scary Spice, and so uh, Nick had to be Baby Spice, you know, the young yeah, blonde yeah. hair. Uh, Kevin's kind of posh, so he had to be posh. Yeah. Uh, now I actually could have gone as Sporty Spice, but Brian's a little bit sportier than me, so okay. I got Ginger Spice. You got Ginger? Yes, and I wore wow. that exact outfit right there. Really? And uh, they had me in some kinky stiletto boots, which hurt my calves for the next three oh days. Gosh. And uh, I'm sure that picture's out there quite a bit Well, I need fans. to see this photo because I yeah. can see you. I see it, but you know, yeah, I'm a Scary Spice fan. <laughs> All right, the next girl group, Destiny's Child. Would you be Michelle Williams, Kelly Rowland, or Beyonce Knowles? Yeah, I think I'd be Kelly Rowland. I thank you. Kelly needs more attention. Yeah, everyone focuses on Beyonce. I love you, Beyonce. Don't kill me. Yeah, but Kelly is the. She's queen. a sweetheart. She's amazing. She's and we, she's ruling your. We had a chance to work with them. They actually opened up for us many years ago, uh, before they exploded, and uh, but they're just an amazing, talented trio of artists. But you are the reason why Beyonce is Beyonce. Great. Uh, I wouldn't take exactly that claim, but hopefully I had a little help. <laughs> That's for you, America. <laughs> All right. Now another boy group. A boy band. Okay. New Kids on the Block. Would you be Donnie Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg, Jordan Knight, Jonathan Knight, Joey McIntyre, or Danny Wood? You know, they're all a bunch of great guys. We had the pleasure of touring with them. Mm-hmm. We did a, a whole tour called NKOTBSB. Uh, yes, yes, yes I remember. Um, and it was an f- amazing run that we did in the United States and in Europe. And so I've gotten to know all these guys um, and had great moments with each of them. Um, but I probably would be Jordan. Okay. Because we have we both Jordan have nice. a similar high range. Okay, height. In the group. Height's a big thing for you. Uh, not height, uh, range, oh, wise, range. Range wise. Oh, I believe, believe me, I'm still vertically challenged comparison <laughs> to those guys. So, uh, All right, so you have similar range. Yep. Okay, so now the last one, which may surprise you. Okay. It's going to be the Kardashian clan with the Kardashians and Jenners. So are you Kim, okay. Chloe, Courtney, Courtney, sorry, Courtney, Kylie, Kendall, or Chris? I'm probably Courtney. Oh, I like this. Oh my God, you want to be more. Scary Spice? You want to be Courtney? I would have chosen all these too. I'm kind of like with a little bit more soft spoken. <laughs> Courtney is not well, soft. No, she is. No, she's not. No, Actually, you're right, you're right. You're right. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, man. I'm thank so excited well. to hear the new Appreciate album, it. and I know the world is really excited to listen to it. Thank so you. So you can listen much. to Which One Am I on all streaming platforms on Friday, July 12th. But stay tuned for more AM to DM. I'm sitting down with the iconic Robin Givens. You know her from classics like Head of the Class and Boomerang. And now she's booked and busy with hits like Riverdale and now Ambitions. Yes. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm a little tired. You have not slept. But it's so exciting. (laughs) It's so exciting. I'm trying to hang in there. You are literally everywhere. As I knew we were speaking today, I saw you on GMA. I see you on Instagram. These things which we'll talk about. (laughs) But you are literally doing everything to get the show out yeah, there. Yeah, I really am, because I love it. Yes, it's I amazing. Mean, I really, really, truly love it. I feel so honored to be a part of it. And, you know, our creator's name mm-hmm. is Jamie Giddens. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Packer is producing, who I, who I just have learned to just love and adore. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I am part of Jamie's dream come true. Oh, my God. Like, I'm inside his dream come true. That's so amazing. I just want the world to know about it. Oh, my God. Well, we want the world to know about it, too. Yes. Can we take a look at a clip Yeah, quick? yeah, let's. Perfect. Oh, it's a good one. Let's do it. Here it comes. Oh, I'm serious, Daddy. You've been talking about retiring for years. Why not now? The firm's doing well, and I can take over the day-to-day management. 
you can't even keep that bottom feet of a husband of yours in line and you want me to trust you with my entire law firm? The only reason I'm still married to that bottom feeder is because you talked me out of divorcing him. Oh, so it's my fault? You said that having a son-in-law in the mayor's office would be good for business, that the Carlisles would run the city. All I had to do was play my part as a dutiful first lady. Well, I did what you asked. Evan's mayor. And now I want more than, than photo ops and, and ribbon cutting ceremonies. It's time you handed Carlisle Perkins over to me. Ooh, she wants the company. Power. She wants the company. She is my possibility she model already. <laughs> She's taking control. She wants what is hers. Okay, let me tell you. Tell she, me about Miss Miss Stephanie Carlisle. She, you've said it up perfectly. Yes. She wants what's hers. And she actually, in this clip, you really get the sense that she wants what she feels she would be given mm -hmm. to her if she was a son, she mm. feels like she's not getting the company Ooh. because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I feel like she's sticking up for all women and the empowerment mm -hmm. of women. But I, as much as I love that clip, mm -hmm. it doesn't show how deliciously devious she is mm. and willing to get everything okay. she wants. I'm telling you, you're going to fall in love with her. Oh. Like as much as I, she will do anything. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of like in her own world. Mm -hmm. She lives by her own rules and she's just fabulous. Oh my God, what drew you to all of that? Because that sounds like a lot to play. It's a lot. It's a lot of energy yeah, needed. it's a lot of energy. And one of the things that I wanted to do and challenged me as an actor is still giving her a heart mm -hmm. and giving her a sense of vulnerability because she does seem so confident. So I'm thinking, you know, what's her Achilles heel? What's mm -hmm. her kryptonite? I really wanted to, and I think I achieved this, give her a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So I wanted people to laugh mm -hmm. and fall in love with her and and just have fun as they're watching her try to take over the world. Mm, I love that. I love that. <laughs> so something else I love is that you have a relationship with Oprah Winfrey. She's posted on Instagram about you in the new show. What's it like to get her seal of approval? Oh, God, that feels good, right? I mean, we, uh, that we all want that. That would, you know, it, yeah. I did a, a, a movie called Women of Brewster Place mm -hmm. with Oprah. So yes. back in the day, yes, yes, and yes. anybody that's been on set, you know how mm -hmm. much downtime there is. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time kind of bonding and talking. Cicely Tyson mm -hmm. played my mom and she's sort of my Iconic. mom in the business. So, and then I took some time off to raise my two boys. So to kind of like re-enter the industry mm -hmm. and then kind of beginning again mm -hmm. um, in this way with Oprah is full circle and I'm just loving it. And we, I think everyone loves that yeah. for you. Yeah. So something I want to ask you about, I know you're a devoted mother yes. and you've said that when you're out with your son mm -hmm. people think that you're dating and it's blocked you from finding a man it's completely blocked me and i have he's to a blocker he and he's incredibly handsome he's hairy so he's i so get handsome. it and he's very handsome all these things he is a man <laughs> yes. all day but something i have to say is i too have dealt with this with my own mother really yes and people there's a picture of us right here yeah. oh wow so my mother and she's also white so people don't yes, really realize so that like oh i came from literally from her yes yeah so i know what it's like to be the son in this situation. Yeah. What's it like being the mother? Well, I want to hear what it's like. Oh, the I can son tell you. Too, so I want you to tell, even if you have to tell me later. Yeah. But you know. It's hard not to love it in mm -hmm. a way. He walks around, even when we're in New York City, he's always got his arm draped over me and he's like 6'3 <laughs> and I'm like little and it's like hanging and they're like, ooh, uh -huh. he's like, that's my mother, yeah. you know? But you kind of, you know, moms, we feel proud. It's mm -hmm. hard not to feel proud. Yeah, and so. I think my mother feels proud too. Yeah. It's just when the check comes, I'm like, am I supposed to pay for this? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Clearly, let me tell you, he knows he's not paying. I know he's not paying. So that the check come in and who's paying is not the issue. I'm paying for the check with him. <laughs> well, beyond your son, people seem really 
obsessed with your love life. Oh, Why do you are. think that is? Oh my God. Because it just keeps coming up. Well, Howard you know Stern, yeah, everything. It really, yeah. really does. I, I, I'm feeling, you know, Howard's married. Mm-hmm. He's happily, I'm, I don't know, I mean, he's married, I'm sure, happily married. And mm-hmm. Brad and all the people. And, and it was just, it was such a long time ago, mm-hmm. you know? So I feel, you know, my apologies to you all <laughs> and to myself. I don't know, but you know, kind of when it's when it, when I was somewhere and they were playing it all back, and I was like, "Man, mm-hmm. my life sounds really exciting." But I feel like I need new con- uh, content mm-hmm. now. I can barely get it out. Mm-hmm. New content, new men. Mm-hmm. Now, are you actively searching for a new man? Well, should we? We can make put my number on the bottom. Oh, we can, we can scroll it. Don't let me, <laughs> America. She's ready. <laughs> we need you to dial one eight hundred. Robin Givens is single. <laughs> That's right. Let's do that. I might okay. take you up. I might call okay. you later. Let me say, know. Let me oh, know. Your mom and I will hang out. Oh, she would like that. I, she's she's, she's remarried. Ready? So she's remarried. Maybe she she so, would love to help. So you. she'll like. Uh, she remarries. So she can give you some some advice, advice. Yeah. on how to how to get a guy, a good guy. Yeah. I you know I've been a single mom mm-hmm. raising two boys, and it's been. In my life, and you know, even with in terms of the business and dating, I've, I've devoted so much time to mm-hmm. them. So it's nice to kind of come back to myself with mm-hmm. work and dating as yeah. part of it. So yes, I'm actively searching. I mean, not so actively, but you know, I'm out here. You know. Oh my gosh! Well, to shift a little, a little bit this morning, I wanted to ask you about being so open about being a survivor of abuse mm-hmm. um, and domestic violence mm-hmm. situations. You know, recently we've seen a lot of shows showing the. The dynamics of those relationships, mm-hmm. such as Handmaiden's Tale, mm-hmm. you know, Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that representation? And do you think that showing domestic violence is helping women? Well, I, I kind of think anything when, when you bring it to light mm-hmm. um, is, is very helpful. Um, sort of when I, it was such a long time ago, even mm-hmm. kind of going back to, to children, what I went through looking at my older son, he's who you just showed, mm-hmm. that handsome guy. Um, I was younger than he was. Oh, wow. So for me, when I say it was a lifetime ago, I look at my children, I look at Buddy, and I'm like, I was younger than you, mm-hmm. um, which gives me some perspective. Yeah. Um, but I think bringing anything to light and having a conversation and talking about it mm-hmm. really helps. I really, really feel that, and I just mentioned this, when men become a part of the mm-hmm. conversation and get involved in what's right and wrong and not allowed certain, mm-hmm. not allow certain things to be said in front of them, mm-hmm. oh, I smacked their ass, oh, what, yeah, you yeah. know? When they stand up, yeah. I think it changes the conversation. I really think even the power of what we're doing now and yeah. those little phones we hold in our hand. Mm. And these the iPads. Yeah, yeah, because I really think what happened with, uh, you know, Ray Rice and having mm-hmm. that on the elevator, I think a lot of things that people can't imagine, oh, that couldn't possibly happen. Yeah. And then seeing a video when things do happen, having the truth yes. kind of right in our face, I think that helps us. We yeah. can't ignore it. Yeah. We have to address it. And it's so important because, you know, right now it feels we're in a place in time where truth is needed even more yeah. than ever. Yes. So thank you for sharing that. I know many yeah. people yeah. appreciate you speaking on that. But the shift gears again, okay. storytelling, okay. boomerang. Yeah. Iconic film. Yeah. And it came back to BET yes. just last year. Yes. You know, the 90s are making a big comeback. Mm-hmm. Who are folks you want to see also ride that comeback wave? Because you've been owning and reigning forever, but who do you want to see that you work with back then have their time back in the oh, spotlight? Oh, wow. You know, I, I was doing something. I got to interview Debbie Mazar, who oh. she and I did vagina monologues mm-hmm. together. Me, Debbie, and Rosie Perez. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that there are so many women out there, not not 
Yeah, I just had Debbie staring mm-hmm. at me, so I'm, I'm glad she's she's doing things. I think there's so many women. It, it, it's hard for me to even particularly think of one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you watching Boomerang? No. You're not? No, I'm doing Ambitions. Ambitions. You, I and mean, I just finished you, the fix. Ambitions, Riverdale, Riverdale yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. And before I let you go, what was the, what's a Riverdale zaddy that you like? Because I just forgot I didn't ask you about the that. The Riverdale zaddy, like a hot man on Riverdale that you want to. Well, the man I just married, Sheriff oh, Keller. The, there we go. So so my character, Sierra McCoy, mm-hmm. just married Sheriff Keller. Yes. And I have to say, the first time Martin even walked in the trailer, yeah. you know, the, the makeup was there, and he goes to the makeup artist, I don't want any of that, I don't want any of that, don't give me any of that. You know, I was like, oh my God, I love him. You know, his gruffiness. Oh. And then we end up getting married. like On the show. Uh, on the show. Will this so be I happening think, in real life? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no. It's, it's we, nice to play. It's nice. I mean, you I know? would like to... I'm, you know, I get to have a lot of sex. Mm-hmm. In ambitions. ambitions. So right now I'm living I thought in life. I was like, okay, Robin. <laughs> no, no, yes. No, but so I am living vicariously yes. through You're Stephanie. You're fulfilled. Yes. Through, through Stephanie, Stephanie That's right. I'm living, <laughs> I am living vicariously through her. There's death. She does it everywhere. I love that. Yeah. Does it everywhere. America, take notes. Do it everywhere. Well, Robin, <laughs> thank you. you so. For me. For me. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. This has been thank you. so much fun to have you here. And it was just, you know, iconic. Iconic all day. Oh, you're making me act bad. Oh, my God. God. If you want to see more Robin Givens, and who wouldn't, you can catch her on Ambitions every Tuesday at 10 p.m. on the OWN Network. Don't go away. More AIM to DM is up next. Welcome back. It is time to read your tweets, but before we do, what a great show. What a great show. It it contained multitudes. It really did. We hit on everything from, you know, the Vicki Ward story, which is so, so, so important. And also what's important about it is that people get to see how journalism isn't perfect all the time. And some editors make some really bad choices, as you see with this one. I mean, it really pulled back the curtain mm-hmm. um, on uh, some of the editorial choices there. And mm-hmm. the thing that really just struck me is, like, what kind of implications does that editorial choice have for other exactly. stories? What other yeah. stuff got cut out? I, yeah. You know, I'm curious. Yeah, and also shows you the power of telling your story. When you come forward and put pen to paper and tell a story that matters, it can change the world. And if it's not told, it can also not change the world and make other people face lots yeah, of bad yeah. things. So. And I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that we are now in this moment where, because of the Me Too movement, movement rather, um, like so many more people are able to come forward yeah. and and talk about these things. Yes. And um, you know, I think she, she said there is. It's part of the cultural moment mm-hmm. is why we're hearing these stories exactly. now. Yes. So. Yes. And also speaking of coming forward, Robin Givens, I will always enjoy that interview forever that was delightful. and ever. Her energy is so great. But people forget that Robin was at the forefront of speaking out about what is now called the Me Too movement. Yeah. And she shows you that you can put those stories out there, keep having a career, and look incredible doing it. And look damn incredible. Ooh, I live for her. I live yes. for her, though. All right, should we get to these tweets? Yes, let's do it. So the first one comes from our favorite, Princess Slaya, who tweeted this after my conversation with Howie D. Okay, with this mixed race convo, I see you. I yeah. it was nice to sit with him as my fellow mixed race uh, queen and king. I'll call him king. Self <laughs> queen. There we go. <laughs> yeah, such a lovely conversation that yeah. you both had as well. It was great. Well, uh, let's get to the big debate from this morning. We Gosh. asked, "Do you carry on or check your bag?" Callis says. Carry on, too cheap to check, and would rather ship things to my destination than rely on the airlines. To which I say, amen. Oh my God. I've always considered the shipping thing, but don't have that much logistical skills. That also just seems like, I will say shipping seems like a lot, especially yes. if you have things that you like need to get. I guess maybe if you're moving, something like that. Oh, mad genius girl, teach me your ways. Mm. Well, Kirsten Baptiste, you tweet it, and you, no, you add it to the conversation. I've had my bags not come before, and they had a priority tag. 
This is what I'm saying. This is <laughs> what I'm saying. Because I am yell? Team Carry On, and the people have voted, and Team Carry On won. So Fine, that settles. <laughs> I'll be checking my bag because the less of you girls that are checking your bags, the faster mine comes. Look at that reverse psychology. Bloop. When yours get lo- gets lost, like don't <laughs> don't call me. Fine. All right. On that note, enough. Tell thank everyone you. thank you. <laughs> Tell them thank you. I have to go. Thank you to our guests, Vicky Ward, Ben Penn, Michael Harriet, Howie D, and Robin Gibbon. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. I'll have my actual baggage, and you'll just have emotional baggage. I always. Remember. <laughs>